0: Scott invited me back, so I guess that's good. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Jesse. I'm a member here, and I've been going here for a few years. And last time I was up here, we did a series on the resurrection. And so uh, this, this time we're going to enter into a two-part series. I'll be preaching next week as well, and we'll be talking about the church, but a specific aspect of the church. We could talk about many things as it relates to the church, but what we'll be focused on on this week and next week is the mission of the church. Um, so before we begin, though, I'd like to play a little game, uh, a little game of guess who? So I'm going to describe some characteristics and you tell me who it is. All right? A white goatee on a chiseled face. thick eyebrows that rest above an intense gaze. White hair flowing out from under a top hat adorned with stars and a bony finger pointed right at you. Who am I talking about? Uncle Sam. Right, y'all are smart. Uh, Time magazine said this, World War I produced one of the most memorable images in American history, the U.S. Army recruiting poster that depicts a commanding Uncle Sam pointing his finger at the viewer and urging young men to enlist in the war effort. Painted by noted U.S. illustrator James Montgomery Flagg, the image first appeared on the cover of the July 6, 1916 issue of Leslie's Weekly Magazine with the title, What Are You Doing for Preparedness? The U.S. would not declare war on Germany until April of the next year, but the storm signals were clear. The image was later adapted by the U.S. Army for the poster with the new, unforgettable call to action. More than four million copies of it were printed between 1917 and 1918. Although there's no winning in war, the recruitment efforts for that were very successful, and that image has become an icon to this day. See, recruitment is essential to accomplishing a mission. And in order to successfully recruit people, a clear vision must be laid out. And so I want us to consider this image of Uncle Sam and replace it in our mind with an even more urgent call. My goal in this series is to first cast a vision for mission, and then next week we'll look at Acts 2 and we'll lay out a strategy for accomplishing that mission. Just like the U.S. Army recruited soldiers for World War I, Jesus is recruiting you to be on His mission. He has sent out the invitation. The poster of God's Word is everywhere. It's in, on your nightstand, it's on your bookshelf, it's in your cell phone, in your pocket. Jesus is calling you to be on mission. So my question for you today is, will you take up the call and go into war for the king, to fight a war not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world? Second Timothy, uh, Paul told his young protege, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crop. So so we're soldiers, Paul says, and, and our mission is to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven through the making of disciples. We're not mainly to be concerned about the temporary things of this world, but we're to pursue this eternal mission of God. So will you go? Will you take up the sword of the Spirit and run in to battle behind the King? But not only are we soldiers. Paul calls us athletes. He says we're running a race, and we must follow the rules that God has set out for us. That's what we'll be looking at next week, this, this strategy for accomplishing this mission. And if, if you want to win, you've got to take a step of faith. You've got to take that first step off the line and pursue that finish line at full speed. So will you train to be spiritually fit and able to run as hard as you can? It's time we strap up our feet with the gospel of peace wherever we go. And this last one, he calls us farmers. We're in this dirt of life, working hard to see people come to Christ. And so will you do the hard work of tilling the soil of people's hearts and scattering the seeds of the gospel wherever you go? This last one, this farmer, that's what we'll be looking at today. Jesus has a different word for it. He calls it a worker of the harvest. So if you don't mind standing with me in honor of God's word, we're going to read Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 through 38. Here, the vision for mission that Jesus lays out for us. Verse 35. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Pray with me. God, we pray your word this morning. Would you raise up workers of the harvest to be sent out into Cookville, into America, into the nations to spread the gospel of the good news of of your kingdom? Jesus, move in our hearts this morning. Please encourage us. God, please do not weigh any, any condemnation on us, for we know that there is no condemnation in Christ. But would your word encourage us to move our feet and to open our mouths in proclaiming the good news? of Jesus, because you are worth it, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, you can be seated. I want to answer four questions from this text. These are the four things you can kind of hang your hat on, the four things we'll be looking at as it relates to this passage. The first question is, what is the lostness in the world? These are people who do not have a relationship with Jesus. They are not Christians. They're separated from God because of their sin. In the immediate context, Jesus was overwhelmed with the crowd that was in front of him. For us, we should be overwhelmed with the vast sea of lostness that's in our city, in our nation, and all over the world. Let's look at those. Cookville, our city. In 12 years, only seven new churches were started in Putnam County. There are 40,000 unchurched people in a seven-mile radius of our church. That means if every single seat on Sunday morning, and every church was filled, there'd still be tens of thousands of people unchurched. Putnam County has grown 13% over the past 12 years. That's 9,000 people. And churches can't keep up with the growth. Putnam County needs more workers of the harvest. We need more churches to be raised up, and we need more people sharing the gospel here in this city. Next, America. There are over 100 million people in America who do not identify as Christian, but that number is probably higher because we know that a self-identified Christian does not necessarily mean a born-again Christian. In 1978, not that long ago, less than 10% identified as non-religious or part of a different religion than Christianity. That's all of that. But in 2018, 24% of the population now identifies as no religious affiliation. And that is staggering the amount of growth that is 22 percent classifies evangelical, 23 percent Catholic, 16 percent other Christian traditions. So if we separate those instead of conglomerate them under the umbrella of Christian, we could say that nuns are one of the fastest-growing ideologies in our nation. Although there's still this kind of lingering Christian ethos, it's disappearing, as more people are leaving the faith to adopt a secular worldview. America needs more workers of the harvest. And lastly, the nations, the world. Over 3 billion people and over 7,000 people groups are currently unreached by the gospel. That means they have little to no access to Jesus. Never even heard of his name, very likely. Churches are spending 99% of their missions resources in places that already have a strong gospel presence. So put another way, churches are only spending 1% of their missions resources to reach 3 billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus. There are 400,000 recorded missionaries on the field currently, and only 12,000 are to the unreached and unengaged people of the world. More than 70,000 people die every day in the unengaged and unreached world without ever hearing the name of Jesus. The nations need more workers of the harvest. I remember reflecting on this passage when I was in India through a mission trip I took with Stephen Street. I was coming down the elevator, um, just looking out. There was glass behind me, and you could just see. There's, there's buildings everywhere in India because there's a billion people. And I was just overwhelmed. Like, man, there's less than 2% Christian here. There's, there's so many people. And just kind of overwhelmed, and I was thinking about this passage. Lord, the harvest, the, the workers are few. And as I went down, we were going to breakfast, and I went and just shared with, with Pastor's wife, Kelly, about just kind of what I was experiencing and, and thinking about. And she just started to weep because her heart was broken for the people of India. Do you feel broken like that for the lost? When I read these statistics, does this overwhelm you? If so, good. It's how you should feel, because that's how Jesus felt looking out at this crowd. Jesus knew the condition of those to whom he was ministering. These were people who were separated from God. And if nothing changed, would one day stand before Him in their sin and be cast into eternal darkness. When we look at harvest language throughout the Scripture, it's rarely used in a positive way. Most of the time it's referring to judgment. And that's what's in view here. There's a a harvest of lost people who if the gospel doesn't get to them and they don't believe, they will perish apart from Christ. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 3, verse 12. He says, "His His winnowing fork is in His hand. And he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. How does that make you feel? Scared? Overwhelmed? Sad? And how did it make Jesus feel? We see it in this text. It said he felt compassion for them. He had compassion for the lost. And that's still true today. Jesus has compassion for the lost. He has compassion on your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. He has compassion on your coworker who doesn't know Jesus. He has compassion on your friend and your child who does not have a relationship with Jesus. And if you're in this room right now and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you've never professed faith in him, Jesus still has compassion on you. He sees you. He knows you. And he has made a way for you to know him. That's why he came. That's why through the compassion of his people, he does it through you. And that leads us to our next question. Who are the workers? That's you, disciples of Jesus. If you have been called by God into a saving relationship with him, then you are a worker of the harvest. First off, what does it even look like to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? How many people in here Um, are in in a trade, some type of trade. Nobody. Anybody? Okay, we got a few. Okay. So, you know, in, in the trade world, you oftentimes will will do an apprenticeship, right? You you don't necessarily go get formal education. Many go to trade school, but you but you don't just jump right into things. Like if you're an electrician you'll probably get electrocuted if you do that. What do you do? You gotta you gotta sit under somebody. You gotta observe them. And they got to teach you and show you what it means to be an electrician. That's an apprenticeship. And eventually you take over and you become an electrician. That's what a disciple is. It's an apprentice of Jesus. It's someone who's, who's sitting under the teaching of Jesus and then becoming like him. And being a disciple is more than an hour or two on Sunday. Being a disciple is about arranging the entirety of our lives around following Jesus. And there's three targets that I think all disciples should be aiming at. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Be with Jesus. In the Gospel of John, Jesus calls this abiding in Him. Abiding in Him. This is having this deep, intimate, personal communion with God. That is essential to being a disciple of Jesus. This happens through prayer, through Bible reading, through silence and solitude, through fasting, through resting in Christ. But next, we're called to become like Jesus. This is being transformed into the image of Christ to the point where it's second nature for us to respond to situations with the fruit of the Spirit. This should happen as a result of those disciplines. As you become disciplined in the faith, Christ starts to conform you, but it also happens through life through suffering, through parenting, through the mundane parts of life. Jesus starts to prune you. It also happens through community. We need partners to help us along the way, to pray for us, to encourage us, to call out sin in our lives. This is all a part of the pruning process where the old self is dying and this new self is being put on. This is sanctification. And lastly, our aim should be to do what Jesus did. This is primarily about Mission. And Jesus was on mission. He was sent by the Father and he lived a life of mission. But it's difficult to live on mission if the first two practices are out of whack. We need to be with Jesus and we need to be aiming to become like Jesus. And as a result, typically your life will start to live like Jesus. You'll start to do the things that Jesus did, like eating with sinners and showing hospitality, sharing the good news with the lost. It looks like doing justice and showing mercy like discipling new believers, teaching them how to obey all that Christ commanded. This is what mission is. And mission is our ultimate work. And that's the answer to the third question. What is the work? Verse 38, he said, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Workers have work to do. And what is that work? We pray and we go. First off, prayer is work. Okay, prayer is essential to the work of, Of mission. We oftentimes think that prayer is some just add on that we do at the beginning of a service or the end of a service or some meeting or before dinner, but prayer is work. The Bible speaks of prayer very differently. It's essential to the Great Commission. And are you praying for your lost friends? Are you praying for boldness to share the gospel? Are you praying for opportunities to arise where people share brokenness with you? Or they ask you a question that's an open door to the gospel. Are you praying for opportunities? Are you praying that God would raise up workers for the harvest? If you are praying these things throughout your life, it is very difficult to not live on mission. And if you're praying for these things, your life will be changed to a missional life. You will inevitably go. And that leads us to the next part. Okay, we pray and then we go. What do we do when we go? Jesus has this famous great commission in Matthew 28. He said, He came near and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's what we're called to go and do. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is primarily broken down. Making disciples is broken down into two ways. It's evangelism and training. Okay, it's a baptizing people into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's, it's sharing the gospel with people. And in a miraculous work of the Spirit, God saves people through our words. Like, like that's unreal that God would use us to communicate His gospel and transformation happens that that's essential we we share the gospel but then when people start to believe and they become christians they need to be trained and that's our responsibility too as workers of the harvest is to teach people to observe to obey all that christ has commanded and where do we find what christ has commanded it's in his word and so we teach people how to read the word how to obey the Word, how to to live the Word out. We get with these people. We show them with our lives. What does it look like to submit to Christ in His Word? And that's the Great Commission, and that's why we are still here. It's the reason we're not beamed up to heaven when we profess faith in Christ. The Great Commission should be the focal point of our lives. I love what the authors of The Trellis and the Vine, a book on discipleship, have to say about this. We're not asking people to contribute to a little club that they happen to be a part of as if we're trying to find someone to be the secretary of the local junior rugby club for the year. We're inviting people to join us in the most significant work in the world, the work that God is doing to gather people into His kingdom through the prayerful proclamation of the gospel of His Son. So we're recruiting people to be part of a cause that is worth giving their lives to. Gospel work has a unique significance in God's plan for the world. We don't make disciples of Jesus by building better bridges, but by prayerfully bringing the Word of God to people. And this is the duty, joy, and privilege of every disciple. In whatever circumstance of life they find themselves. Secular work is valuable and good and must not be despised or downgraded, but it is not the center or purpose of our lives, nor the means by which God will save the world. My primary identity as a Christian is not that I am an accountant or a carpenter, but that I I am a disciple-making disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our identity is in who we are following, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we take on this identity as a disciple-making disciple of Christ. And that should motivate us to do all that he has commanded. So, if God is so good, and we treasure the gospel more than anything, and we love his word, and we want to obey his word, and we want to see our lost friends come to Christ, I know all of you in here want that, you believe that then why are the workers few? Why are they few? Because there's a cost to following Jesus that many are not willing to pay. It requires sacrifices that many of us are not willing to make. We shrink from the challenge because it replaces our comfortable, cozy vision of the nice Christian life with a call to devote our lives to making disciples. Making disciples takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice, and sacrifice does not come naturally to us. Now, this is the part of the sermon that might offend you. You might feel like a little crawling in your skin. I might step on your toes and make you uncomfortable. And I, I aim to not shower any condemnation on anybody. There's no condemnation in Christ. And we're free, right? We're free from, from our sin. God has saved us. And he's made us new. And, and there's no sin that can separate us from the love of Christ. But, man, my, I, 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 don't, I don't intend to place guilt on you. I, I just, I, wanna, I want the grace of Christ to compel you to obedience. I, I know, and I've experienced it, evangelism is a weighty task. And the American church, Christians in America, we struggle taking steps of faith. We're very comfortable people, and I I praise God for many of the comforts that we have, but God calls us to do things that are uncomfortable, and sometimes it makes us uneasy. You know, you may not feel like you can make disciples, because you may not feel like you're a super Christian, and God calls super Christians to do this work. Like, I'm not articulate. I'm, I'm not, I don't even know the word that well, but guess what? That's not true. God doesn't call super Christians to make disciples. God calls Christians to make disciples. All believers are called to the task of making disciples. I mean, look at the early ones. Look at the 12 that he chose. These are a bunch of common, uneducated teenagers that he chose. If you look at the story of of Jesus and Peter when, when when these people come and ask for the temple tax, Jesus tells Peter, go fishing they you're going to catch fish, there's going to be a temple. There's going to be a coin in its mouth. One coin. Okay, go pay the tax with that. So Peter does it. But when you go and you look in Leviticus at the temple tax laws, what you learn is that only those who are 20 years and older pay the temple tax. So what does that teach us about the 12? That 11 of them were teenagers. That's who Jesus chose. They were common, uneducated, untrained teenagers. And he used them change the world and I love in Acts 4 13 these people marveled at Peter and John even though they lacked formal education because the scripture says they recognized that they had been with Jesus that was the identifying mark of these people was not some knowledge that they had attained but their relationship with Jesus that had transformed them do you want to be a better disciple maker then you've got to spend time with Jesus The closer you get to Jesus, the more likely you will live on mission. The Christians who are not living on mission are missing out. Man, you're missing out. There's just something about living by faith and putting your life and your reputation and image on the line for Jesus that just, man, it just does something to you. After you share the gospel with somebody, I don't know if you've experienced this, but after I've done it, man, and I go away, I'm just like, I could like run through a wall that just pumps me up and my like, blood is flowing and it, it's amazing the experience that you have proclaiming the good news of the gospel and, and taking risks for Christ. But you see, most reject the call before even getting to experience the joys that come through sharing. Let's look at a few examples then from the life of Jesus where people choose to walk away from his calling and see how we might find ourselves in their shoes. As I said, I don't want this to bring guilt and shame. Jesus takes away guilt and shame. So let the kindness of of Christ compel you to repentance and and go and and make disciples and share the gospel. There's at least 70 stories in the gospels where people shrink from Jesus' call to sacrifice for the kingdom. And he said so many hard things. We oftentimes, there's this picture painted of Jesus like he's some hippie dude who's just like all nice all the time. And Jesus said some really hard things. And as it relates to the call to kingdom work, there's a few that stick out to me. Matthew eight, eighteen through 22 says, when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man, has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Man, that's that's a tough saying. Jesus says we must sacrifice home and security. No, we can turn good things into stumbling blocks, to mission. Family and your home are very good things, ordained by God that we should give him thanks for and we should steward well, but they should never get in the way of obedience to Christ. And do you feel a desire to go on mission? Share that desire with your spouse and begin to pray that God would align your desires, that he would provide for you to sacrifice maybe your your finances or your time to to go on a trip or to even move somewhere for the sake of mission. And are you a college student wrestling with this call to, to foreign missions? Or church planting, but but you might be afraid of what your parents might think. Or maybe you're a teenager and, and you're wrestling with the same thing. And Jesus said in Luke 15 that if anyone comes to him and doesn't hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, that even their own life, you cannot be his disciple. He's not telling you to break the, the great commandment He's not telling you to dishonor your father and mother, but what he is saying is that your relationship with your family should not get in the way of obedience to him. This passage should directly challenge us to ask ourselves about our own priorities in following Jesus. The decision to obey him should never be put off. Nothing should be placed above total commitment to Christ and to following him. Next in Mark 10, another tough saying. Verse 17, he says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. He said, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus calls us to sacrifice money for the sake of his mission. God's been doing a work in my heart on this recently. Um, and we, you know, I, I, I work in the secular world just like many of you. My wife has a great job as a nurse practitioner, and, and we're comfortable, and we're very comfortable. Um, but in my devotion time this week, and God's been doing a work in my heart to take some steps of faith, specifically as it might relate to money. And, and he, he brought me across this passage, First Timothy six, six through ten. And then as so I was just meditating on it, came across another passage, Hebrews thirteen, five. And first Timothy he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And the Hebrews passage says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. See, having a lot of money is not a bad thing. If you can get it, then get it. And get it and and enjoy it and live generously. But if you find it difficult to sacrifice, then money has a greater hold on you than you have on it. It's managing you and it's supposed to be the other way around. And giving frees our heart to make room for faith. Is money getting in the way of mission in your life? Are you accumulating so much that all of your time is being occupied with gaining more or maintaining what you have? Mission is costs time and as that famous saying goes time is money and if Jesus asks you to give up your home your car your level of income your position on a ladder of promotion your toys how would you respond Jesus wants to free you from the things of this world in verse 21 it says looking at him Jesus loved him and if you find yourself struggling just like this rich man to give up these things Jesus still loves you And nothing can separate you from the love of God, but you're missing out. You're missing out on treasures far greater than anything this world has to offer. Last one, John 6. Right before this, Jesus said to a group of people in the synagogue, he said, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. They didn't have the teaching on the Lord's Supper at this time, and Jesus hadn't died yet. Like, just put yourself in their shoes. Jesus has told you, you got to eat my flesh, and you got to drink my blood to be my disciple. What in the world? In verse 60, therefore many of the disciples heard this. They said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, does this offend you? Now, what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They left. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. We must sacrifice our pride. Jesus will call you to do things that don't make sense to the world. Be okay with that. For we do not live for man's approval. And Jesus will call you to be ridiculed. You're going to be ridiculed for your faith. You will be misunderstood. You will be You you will look like a fool, like you will. Sharing the gospel, standing up for truth will make you look like a fool in this world. But Jesus offers no middle ground. It's polarizing to be a follower of Jesus that speaks the truth, especially in our nation. So is that hindering you from being obedient to the mission? Are you too scared or too worried about what others might say about you or think about you? And Jesus calls us to sacrifice our pride. But I want to echo Peter's words of John chapter 6, verse 68 and 69. He said, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The cost of following Jesus is high. But the cost of not following him is even higher because the value of following Jesus far surpasses anything you might give up in this life. Jesus is worth it, and Jesus alone has the words of life. Do you want to live? And do you want your lost friends to live? Jesus has the words of life, and he has entrusted those words to us. Are we willing? to go? Are we willing to put our life on the line, to stick our neck out, to be misunderstood, to be ridiculed for the sake of Christ? And Jesus is so good. Why would we not follow him? He's calling you, church, to be missionaries. This call is a call to all Christians. You don't have to go on a plane to be one. It's not like some magical thing happens when you get on a plane and you fly overseas and then boom, you're now a missionary. I May mean, God cause all of us to live on mission where we work, where we play, where we live. So use your job, use your skills, use your neighborhood, use, the, use your passions to go and to proclaim the goodness of Christ that is the gospel. He commanded us to pray, okay, to pray for more workers, So I want us to do that in this time. I want us to spend a few moments in silence, giving us room to cry out to God. Um, There's one thing that I admire about Muslims, is that they put themselves in a posture of humility when they go to their false god in prayer. And so would you position yourself in a place of humility maybe? Kneel down in your seat. Come up to the altar. And Jesus is commanding us here to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to raise up workers of the harvest. This city needs the gospel. Our nation needs the gospel. The world needs the gospel. So let's pray. Let's pray for our friends. Let's pray for our neighbors. Let's pray for our coworkers. Let's cry out to God that, that he would pour his spirit out on this place and, and bring a revival and save people. Would these, would these baptismal waters be filled every single Sunday? Would God do a work? So let's pray together.